My daddy's gone on, my grandpa's gone on, my great-grandpa's gone on. But they still live. You know, the, the spray is still here. They tell me of a home where no storm clouds rise. Tell me of a home far away. Hey everybody, welcome to our third episode of It Still Lives. I'm Kimmy Aarons. I'm TJ Smith. And today we're going to talk a little bit about Aunt Aerie. So for those of you who are familiar with the Foxfire series, um, Aunt Aerie is probably a recognizable name for you. She's featured in the very first Foxfire book. She's also featured in several magazines and several other books. So because she was interviewed so many times, we needed to limit ourselves to one to start with. So we're going to start with the very first interview, which was recorded in 1969. Um, and this one's a little bit unique because when the interviewers walked up to her to start the interview, she was in the process of making souse meat, which uh, involves a hogshead and cutting eyeballs out of the hogshead. So we're going to share some pieces of this with you, but it ended up being a three hour long interview. So we won't share the whole thing, um, but we'll just share the best parts. Yeah, it was, you know, previously in, I think in episode two, we talked a little bit about just the way that the interviews happen and the things that come out of them. And um, oftentimes when the students were approaching these folks, it wasn't with any kind of prescription for like how long we're going to spend there or. Uh, you know, we need to cover these topics. The initial interviews were always sort of a fact-finding mission, or you know, uh, uh, let's let's just sort of see what they say, and um, and then you get this this great discussion around this uh, this process of removing a an eyeball from a hog's head. Yeah, and what's so different about these interviews is that the interviewees were very receptive to people just walking up and introducing themselves and they would just start talking and that's that's where some of the best material um, came out yeah and I believe there was already a pre-existing relationship between uh, Paul Gillespie and Anne there was the, yes. he knew of her so, through family or something like that yeah so the students who went to interview Aunt Ari actually didn't record the very first time that they met her they went with um, Andrea Burrell and her friend was it Patsy Cave I think yeah um, and then I think they took a few other students with them and so they just kind of went and introduced themselves and so this is I guess technically a follow-up but it's mm -hmm. the first recorded interview we have um, so we just want to start off with some background on Aunt Airy she was born a Cabe so in this region there are very recognizable last names and Cabe is one of them. C-A-B-E. Yeah, so she was born Airy Cabe in December of 1885 and she lived to be 92 and the last 12 years of her life she actually lived alone on a mountain in her cabin um, which is pretty impressive for an 80 year old woman to, to really thrive that long um, on her own. Uh, she didn't get married until she was 38 and one of the main reasons for that is she was really adept and just loved taking care of sick people. Um, so she took care of her mother until her mother passed because her mother had some serious issues and needed a lot of care, especially in her later years. And then she just took care of other sick people in the community, including extended family members. Um, but she married Ulysses Carpenter in 1923. Ulysses had a child from a previous marriage. Um, he'd actually gone out and lived in Washington State for a while until his uh, wife died. And then he and his daughter moved back and um, he married Ari after he returned. Um, and Ari just loved Ulysses. 
Mm -hmm. I mean, she, in every interview, talks on and on and on about Ulysses. But unfortunately, he died in 1966, so I don't think any of the students ever got to meet Ulysses. Which, I mean, it's interesting that he passed away in the same year that Foxfire was getting going, so they just missed the opportunity. Um, which I think kind of speaks to um, the nature of this work and the urgency of the work. Um, because, you know, we began this project at a time when this generation, you know, like Ari, um, like many of the people who were in the Fox, in the pages of Foxfire, were getting well on into their 70s and 80s. Um, and so it was really a perfect moment in that, you know, uh, this thing did start at a, at a point where these people were still there, but, you know, they were very much quickly passing on. Um, and so it was just good luck or fortune or what have you that, that it just happened to start at that time that we were able to, to sit down with a lot of these, um, these, these personalities and these individuals who, you know, have left now this lasting legacy through the pages of Foxfire that people still, you know, 53 years later are talking about. Yeah, and I think Aerie is really unique in the fact that she lived so long. Yes. You know, most, most of the people that they interviewed probably died in like their 70s, maybe mm -hmm. their 80s, but to live into her 90s is pretty impressive. Um, but, you know, we always talk about how even in the 1960s, even though things were changing, um, the people they were interviewing, these people who, like Aunt Aerie who were born in the 1880s, were still living very much in a style reminiscent of the, the 19th and 20th centuries. Here on the, the museum grounds, we have this new cabin that we opened up, the War Woman Cabin. And that, I think that's kind of a good depiction of this, where it's sort of a this mix of people holding on to the way they've always done things because that's what they were comfortable with, but you know, starting to let in some technology and some modernity into their homes. I think the student, it really resonated with the students because that was part of the reason they kept going back is because they felt called to sort of be a help to her. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they, and plus she cooked for them <laughs> and made really good meals for them. Yeah, I don't think any visitant Aries was complete without a huge spread. Right. Um, she <laughs> loved to feed them, but they also, I mean, they helped her immensely by planting her garden and helping just care for the house and take care of things that she wasn't necessarily fit to do right. as well as she once was. So, but anyway, TJ alluded to this quote unquote story about Aunt Airy that we are really excited to share today. Um, and it starts with um, Hume Cronin and Jessica Tandy and Susan Cooper, who approached Foxfire about writing a play about Aunt Airy. Um, they were so inspired by her story that they wanted to transform that into a play to be shown on Broadway. The Broadway play was a huge hit, and Jessica Tandy actually went on to win a Tony for her performance of Aunt Airy. Um, and then it later was turned into a Hallmark movie that was uh, filmed here in the area, but it also featured John Denver. So some of our Foxfire students got to meet John Denver, which and I think awesome they got experience. to participate in the in the filming and and serve as extras and, and that kind of thing. That was a really great experience for them to be a part of all that. But um, yeah, when they, when Cronin and uh, Susan Cooper initially wanted to, to do this story, they were told, well, you're going to have to ask the students. Yeah. And uh, so they, they came down and they met with the Foxfire students 
and the uh, Susan Cooper had said that you know she remembered they went into a room. They had all these kids sitting on the floor. <laughs> they sat in chairs. Susan and Hume kind of gave their pitch, and then they were asked to leave the room. The students met and conversed. They called them back in and said, "Yeah, you can make your play." And and that was how that got started. <laughs> yeah, but the the coolest thing to me is that the students were really concerned about the representation right. of the area yeah. and of Aunt Dairy. Right, and you know, to put it in, in a time perspective, when Cronin and Susan were approaching the students, Deliverance, the film Deliverance was still very fresh in the minds of this community. Because um, I think that movie came out in the 70s? Mid, 70s? Mid to late 70s. This play was being written in the late 70s and early 80s. Yeah. So they had just been burned by this one production. They didn't want to, they didn't want to see that happen again, what happened with, with the filming of Deliverance up here and, and then the release of the film. So yeah, they, they met with them and, and got, gave them their approval. For those of you who want to look it up, the play and the uh, movie were both called just Foxfire. Um, and so. recently was just done. Um, Theater 3 in oh. Dallas, Texas, uh, just did a production of Foxfire. And then our own local community players group, they do a production of Foxfire mm-hmm. uh, with, with Submergularity. Are we saving the story for later? I was going to let you take it away if okay. you want to bring it in. <laughs> so this is, you know, one of those interesting moments uh, that you don't, you don't ever plan for. But um, one day I got a, a letter um, from, from Susan Cooper. And, um, I'll just read it. Um, in the play Foxfire, our main character, Annie Nations, played by Jessica Tandy, was inspired by Aunt Ari Carpenter to the point where the first scene of the play had her cutting the eyes out of a hogshead, just as Aunt Ari had been doing when the kids first interviewed her half a century ago. Back then, Aunt Ari had been using a little knife made for her by her late husband, Ulysses. Before the play opened, that same knife was given to Jess as a good luck present by our our young Foxfire friends, and she used it on stage at every performance thereafter, including the Broadway run. After that, it lived in her kitchen drawer. Jess died in 1994 and Hume in 2003, and I've just realized that I still have Aunt Ari's knife. I think it belongs in the Foxfire Museum. Would you like to have it? If so, will you tell me where to send it? I just immediately called her up, you know, with the hope of maybe getting her on the phone, and she answered, and and we had a really lovely conversation. And and so uh, Hume Cronin and Jessica Tandy were married, uh, and then uh, Jessica Tandy passed away in 1994. Hume remarried, Hume Cronin remarried, and he remarried Susan Cooper. So Susan said she was going through a kitchen drawer looking for something and she found this old knife and she remembered where it was from, but it's quite remarkable. And that was Aries knife. And yeah, Jessica Tandy used it on stage for the Broadway play and then used it in the film. And it's just you know remarkable, this piece of Ulysses after his death, you know, yeah. got to, got piece to of go, lives on. Yeah, got to go to Broadway and got to go, got to go to Hollywood. Yeah. So. 
So I think that sets the scene pretty good for our first clip that we're going to share. And just to give you a little bit more background information um, before we jump in, it is right as our interviewers are walking up to Aunt Erie. So it might be a little bit difficult to hear, but we'll post a transcript. Um, but essentially, like I said earlier, she is standing at a table outside with a hog's head trying to dig these eyeballs out so that she can make souse meat. I don't want to cut here if I can help you. Because the black stuff will run all over everything. <laughs> <laughs> Let me see if I can get it. Give it a good pull and see if you can see you're strong enough. <laughs> oh my goodness. See if you can pull it out a little further. Oh, goodness, love. Now, see if you can take your fingers and pull that eyeball up and cut it off. Okay. Now, I, I I can, but if I had strength. Uh huh. Now, and I, now tell me tell me again what you're going to make with all this and how, what you're going to do with it. Souse. Souse. You meat. Souse meat. Uh huh. Boy, that's the best stuff I love. It better not do sausage. <laughs> and you how see, do you make that? Take this now. And I'll soak it in my and soak every bit of this blood out of it. I don't never cook no meat. Soak all the blood out of it? Yeah, soak uh -huh. it until it's just white in the morning. That's the reason we're getting ready this evening. Uh -huh. Then I'll cook it, and then I'll take it and grind it on that sausage grinder that they had in their hands last night. And, uh, and take the juice that this is cooked in, part of it, and put some sage. I ain't got no sage, though. Put black pepper in it and red pepper. And stir it all up, it's just as good and fine as it can be. And then put in them jars and seal it uh -huh. in can, little can jars. I always put it in a pint jar. And then we open it long day time in the winter and eat, eat that more. It can make Foxy Granny. He said, Oh, I love it better than anything in the world, really. Uh, <laughs> and how, what do you do when you, how do you cook it? Do you cook it when you, when you take it out? Or do you cook it before you put it in the jars? I cook it before I put it in the jars. Uh -huh. And then when you take it out, you heat it up well, and it's well, ready to go? Well, yes, if you, don't, if you don't just cut it out and eat it cold, right? a lot of people eat it cold. Uh, I fix mine in in this pan and then pack it in the jars and then, and then process it just a little while. Uh -huh. All right, so I don't know about you, but I definitely do not want house meat. <laughs> it's it's really, I mean, if, if you like, if you've eaten Spam or you've had um any kind of like canned ham or canned meat um you've almost had souse meat you've i've never had canned meat though really Girl, I'm not from from here. we were um, we were having a, i was having a conversation with somebody else about that the other day like deviled ham on white bread is just like magic but yeah if you've ever or if you've ever had but again spam is really close to souse meat it's there's a lot of good meat on a hog's head we know that if you've ever had hog jowls or anything like that no cheek meat never had pork cheek in a taco okay so I, i'm not opposed to it right. because i love pork well there's a lot of good fatty um a lot of good fatty meat on a hog's head so you're boiling this off um you're straining out the water you're adding spices and you're creating a mold a meat mold mm -hmm. and and then now it's the same thing as or almost the same thing as head cheese yeah heads cheese and souse meat that's just two different terms yeah, it's interchangeable i've seen head cheese yeah it's store. just 
Yeah, souse, I guess the word souse meat or the term souse meat is probably more localized to... No, it's actually, so... Okay. I looked this up because I (laughs) I thought it was just like a term around here, but we were watching this show, this cooking show, and they recreate recipes in Ireland from like the 1600s and the 1700s Mm -hmm. and 1800s for these like huge mansions. And one of the things that they had to do was make souse. And it wasn't, they weren't using hogshead, but they were using different pieces of meat. Right. And so they were talking about the origin of the word souse, and it basically just means to, like, soak something in a liquid or to, like, pickle it. Uh-huh. So souse meat really, I guess, could refer to anything that's, like, boiled and then pickled. Okay. Um, but in this region, as far as I know, it refers to specifically taking hogshead off the hogshead. Hogshead right. Yeah. So where, so what... Is it an Irish term? I think uh, it's Old English. Old English. I think it's an Old English term. I'm a, I'm but a, don't quote me because I'm not a linguist. Well, I've got, I've, I actually have a good Old English dictionary. Maybe I can go look that yeah, up. Yeah, we should we look get, it up. We can so. put that in our notes about it. Anyway, so the next clip will not be quite as graphic, but this one um, is actually a combination of two clips that I found pretty, I don't know, impactful from her interview. Um, and one of them is about when she first bought candy. Mm-hmm. Um, she loved hard candy, um, but she didn't buy candy until she was an adult, which is crazy. Right. Um, not something that we would ever think of. And then the second one is about her buying clothes and saving up to make clothes or to buy um, different types of clothes and how um, cost really impacted what what she thought of the product, which is kind of interesting. Um, so she talks about how expensive things are and how much she would rather have homemade things because they're better and they were cheaper at that time, which is completely opposite for what it is now. Um, but I chose these two clips because I think they show how resourceful and conservative she was. And we kind of get that from her saving the meat from the hog's head. Um, but I think these really kind of drive it home. So I want you to listen to these clips and then as you're listening to them, think about how they might force a change in your own perspective if you put yourself in Aunt Aerie's shoes and see if you can maybe rethink your own uh, relationship with material goods. And you know how much candy I bought in my life before I was married? Now, I was married, I was 38 years old before I was married. And I bought one nickel's worth of candy in my life. I just didn't have nothing to buy with. Mm-hmm. Well, uh... How did you, did you make your own clothes? Uh, yeah, about everything I've ever had in my life it has been homemade. Mm-hmm. I ordered two undercoats the other day. Got Ruth Marie down here to order them. Ordered. Couldn't get them down here, I wouldn't have done it. And I said, I'm 84 years old, and that's the second undercoat I've ever had bought in my life. Now that's the truth. Now, I think that's that. a both they good one though. Mm-hmm. They part wool, but boy, I paid enough for them. Paid seven dollars for two, and I thought that was terrible. When you go to buy your stuff ready made, you you have to have a pocket full of money if you get how get it anywhere. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, yeah, I've done a lot of sewing, a lot of sewing. I've done a lot of shop sewing, carding, and spinning. And uh, knitting, I, I can knit with four needles. Yeah, I've knit uh, many a pair of wool socks. Mm-hmm. It's true. Then I, I crochet. I crochet lots too. 
turf lawns like that. But I never sit here and do nothing. This particular interview for me um, speaks to the importance and relevance of the Foxfire project and the program and the intergenerational um, uh, connections between the students and the people they're talking with. So for our students, you know, even in you know 1969, 1970, the idea one <laughs> of not being not buying a piece of candy until you're well into your old age is kind of remarkable. But also the notion that if you wanted something, you couldn't just go to the store to get it was also a revelation for them. You know, the students that were part of the program early on, a lot of them had televisions. They certainly had radios. They had access to, they went to the movies as teenagers. They had vehicles. They, um, they most often bought their clothing from stores. You know, some of the, I think some of the young women still had, uh, you know, uh, homemade dresses, but they also had a lot of store-bought clothing. But this idea that, you know, everything they needed wasn't just a drive to, the, to town away, um, I think that was remarkable. And certainly for our students now, that intergenerational connection, while not as stark as the differences between the students in 1967, 68, and the people they were interviewing, there is certainly, you know, aspects of it that are quite stark. And as young people, you know, talking to someone about a very different experience growing up and talking about, it's not really hardship, it's just, you know, you have to put more work in to get something back. That is a tremendously important aspect of this program. It may be the most important aspect of this program. Having these young people talking to folks in their communities who come from different backgrounds, who have different experiences, uh, that has a tremendous impact on someone, uh, especially on young people. Anytime you're, you're asked to sit down in front of another, another person face-to-face, -face, look them in the eye and have a conversation and listen to their experiences, that creates an intimacy that you don't get from social media or from picking up a book. That human-to-human -human transaction of, of, of information and knowledge is still the most important part of the human experience. And that's what is so great about this program to me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, another thing, just piggybacking off of that is, this is really the time period where a huge cultural shift begins to make the modern culture that we have now. And I think being able to cross those cultures and understand that um, you know, this over-commodification of everything. Um, it wasn't always like that and that we weren't always material creatures. <laughs> right. You know, and that not everything revolved around money and things actually revolved around um, values and relationships. And it's something, it's a theme that comes up again and again and again and again in our interviews. I was just, uh, had the opportunity to participate in a, in a, um, sort of a panel discussion at the Museum of the Cherokee um, through this this program that Western Carolina University is doing called Live Lab. And the, the panel was talking about women in Appalachia. And one of the things that I discussed with them, it's really interesting, especially with the women that we interviewed, they were very upfront with 
their perspectives and their philosophies on things like faith and things like wealth and money and materialism. And they shared that with these students at a time when, yes, we're heading towards the, you know, the Wall Street era of the 80s. Like that's what we're heading towards this more materialistic period of time. And this older generation sees this and they're talking to these students about, you know, money's, you know, money's okay, but I've got no real use for it. The things that matter to me are like having this conversation with you. Yeah. and my family and for young people these young people to hear that I think is was tremendously impactful and I think it and it's something it's a theme that still comes up today especially when you know when students go and talk to older generations of folks people get to that age where they recognize like yeah <laughs> money and material goods you know they're they're necessary to a point but you know I don't think Anybody would ever say, you know, I wish I had spent less time with my family so I could go out and spend money or do this. It's always the opposite. I wish I had had more time with my family. Absolutely. uh, I think think that sets sets us up great for the next um, two clips as well. Um, So these, again, are two clips that we paired together. um, And she in this section is talking about her relationship with the landscape and the land specifically that she lives on. So when Ari had a small cabin that she lived in with Ulysses until he died, um, that was in Macon County, North Carolina. So pretty close to Raven Gap where the students were at school. Um, so she's up on, up on the mountain by herself and she's talking in this section about, um, the government coming to buy a piece of her land and offering her money for it. And she is just totally put off by the fact that they would even think that she would sell it. And they don't understand why she doesn't want the money. Um, but to her, money is just a convention that she has to participate in, whereas the land is worth so much more. It has, you know, intangible value. And this is actually the plot line for the Foxfire play and movie. Yeah. I guess I got just about what I'll have when I took away from here. Yeah. Looks like the porch outside is going to have to be fixed, and they want me to sell a place so bad. You know, they have this place all the time. You Who's know, after I, it for? I can get lots of money for this place, and I know it. I've already been offered lots for it, and I wouldn't take it. Offer $500 an acre for. for Forty acres at the back side of this mountain. See now, this land, you know what principle is that I know. But anyhow, so over across this mountain, goes from down on the other side, and the government comes up there, and they want that. And I said, but I said I don't want to sell it. <laughs> no, he just looked up at me so funny. I said, I guess that was one time I missed it. He, he said he'd give $20,000 for 40 acres. Well, that they 68 acres of it all. Well, we'll take that other, I ain't ever subtracted that from that, see how many acres, then then they give $1,000 acre for the rest of it. I mean, I said, was, well, I said, what would I do with that money? And they looked at this funny, I, I don't care nothing. You know, I don't care about money much. And I have to have it. 
You you know you have to have money to live. Yeah. yeah. Why do you want to stay? I think I know why you want to, but I want you to say it in your own words. Well, it's just home, that's all. Yeah, right. Yes, it's just home, and I've been staying here so long. Spent my happiest days here. Yeah. And I tell you the truth, I'm not bothered with one single thing in this world here. The viewpoint that Aunt Ari is sharing in these clips is really providing some perspective on the relationship between people who live in Appalachia, the land, and also kind of this outsider entity. And Aunt Ari's case, it's the government. And this is, you know, a cyclical process that keeps recurring throughout history. And we want to tr retrace our steps back a bit and just give acknowledgement to the fact that this started with the Cherokee and the other Native American tribes in this region when the European and American settlers who came into the region started seizing up the land and then leading ultimately to the removal of the Cherokee. And that's something that we really want to address and give space to. Um, and we'll probably touch back on that in a separate podcast where we'll be able to give it kind of the space that it deserves. But um, I just wanted to put that in there before we jump into this discussion about Aunt Ari and um, her experience with the government coming in in the 20th century and trying to take her land. Right, and, and her experience really is a nice example of the experience of a lot of folks in this region, especially at this like early 20th century, as we see hydroelectric power coming into the region. Um, and then um, once that's established, these other power companies coming in, uh, governmental agencies. And then by the time of Airy, we, we were getting uh, a new kind of land development. We're getting the weekenders who are building, you know, mountain escapes or lake escapes in this region that are coming from the cities um, and developers sort of seizing on that. And we also see like industry coming into the area, people who are wanting to build, um, you know, build an economy in this area. Uh, but it's it's just something that just keeps on going and on going and on going and we're 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 living in it now again and now it's uh, cultural and eco tourism or just tourism. Yeah, it seems to be one of the more mainstream stories of Appalachia is this, you know, intense increased commodification of the land, followed by periods where it kind of like sloughs off and mm -hmm. isn't as desirable of a commodity. Um, you know, because they could definitely go through phases of isolation, but then, you know, if we're looking back at the Cherokee, you know, with the gold rush of Dahlonega, people mm -hmm. coming in and wanting that land immediately, um, and then it kind of, you know, again, tapers off for a bit, and then with the formation of the lakes around here, which is, you know, the hydroelectric aspect, um, again, these companies coming in and seizing the land, and the coal companies coming in and taking land, um, so it's kind of this weird ongoing power struggle um, that people people tend to view it, I feel like, from more of a material or economic aspect mm -hmm. in terms of how much is it worth, but not focusing really on um, more of an ethnographic or anthropological perspective and examining exactly what it, that relationship between humans and the landscape really looks like because it's more than just a place to live. And I think in just those few minutes, Aunt Ari really drives home that there's this deeper connection between her and the landscape. Um, 
And, and I, that, I think that goes to that generation too. You know, generationally, as we move into modernity, that connection that we have as individuals and families and communities to the land has been severed in a lot of cases. And whereas Aries generation and the generation of many of the folks that the Foxfire students were interviewing in those early years, the land was was the livelihood. You know, everything they needed from food to shelter to clothing came because of the land. And the students were of a generation that they're starting that they're starting to see that relationship between people and nature severed. And so it's a valuable piece of uh, ethnography because it's really representative of really the last generation of folks who yeah. are really like, you know, on mass tied to the land. We saw farmers and things like that. We're still dependent on the land if we want to, whether we want to admit it or not. <laughs> but um, the, the, the closeness between people and the land uh, at large was, was changing. Absolutely. And I think, I think this can be really impactful too for current youth in Appalachia because we have a huge problem with youth flight out of Appalachia. Mm -hmm. And I think hearing this, this type of relationship to place may help younger generations start to reform that identity with the land and with this location. Yes. Um, and so I think, I think it's a really powerful passage that really comes from, as you said, a different generational perspective. So anyway, moving into our second to last clip, um, this I think is a really beautiful piece of Aunt Ari talking um, or looking backwards on her life. So every time that the students interviewed someone new, one of their stock questions was, what advice do you have? Or um, would you rather live now than then? Or would you go back and change anything? Kind of those like big picture questions, um, hoping to get some wisdom from their elders, community elders. But in in this instance, Aunt Ari gives just a very simple response um, about how she doesn't want to live with regret and um, how she is grateful for every experience that she had, even though Aunt Ari lived a very difficult life. Mm -hmm. She you know, was one of several children with a mother who was ill and not able to really care for the family and a father that worked too much. And you know, she had a lot of struggles. She sacrificed a lot of her time to care for other people. Um, she, until her very last breath, was a woman who gave as much as she could. Um, so I think this is just kind of a really beautiful piece um, that she shared with the students. I've been, all, I've been awful little all my life. My hands never has been nothing, but boy, they've done a lot of hard work. I wish I could. No, I ain't no use bushing old sisters that. Called back 25 years ago when I did work. That's silly. Yeah, I think. I honestly lived, I lived and done the best I could. And then wish you go over your life again. I, I think that's silly in a way. Well, so I don't know. I guess just whatever. No. At where there's a will, there's a way. Mm -hmm. And since I've been like I am, just like this was. This, there's always something comes in this time. Mm -hmm. Now that don't look like it do that, but it does. Mm -hmm. Ari loved having these young people come to her. It, 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 I think those last years of her life that she was 
connected with the Foxfire program may have been some of her best. And she would probably say the same thing. Um, because of the love that she felt from these young people, but also the love that she was able to give to them. Because as you know, Cammie noted, Ari was a caregiver and a nurturer in a lot of different ways. And being able to feed these kids when they came by and sit with them and talk with them was just another way for her to nurture. And I think that extends beyond the just the students in Aunt Ari because I think everybody who encounters Aunt Ari, yes, even through the pages, right, feels feels this love from Aunt Ari. I mean, everybody feels a connection with her. So I really encourage you if you haven't already to pick up the first book. And just read that very first interview with her, and you will understand. <laughs> and certainly, the and and the portrait of Aunt Airy, which is the biography, um, is really lovely. And I hope you're, you know, I'm. I hear it when I listen to interviews with her. Um, Cami, I remember one of your first months, I think, at Foxfire, we found that tape. Yes. Um, in our search for something else, and we were trying to get a find a VCR to work, and we were. But we played this tape and it was her sitting there um, doing an interview and just the warmth of her persona yeah, and who she was. It was She was just one of the best humans. Yeah, and I think she's really become an emblem for Foxfire. I, mean, I call she's... her the matron saint of Foxfire. <laughs> she is the matron yeah. saint of Foxfire. Yeah, yeah, so she really... You know, the relationships that the students built with her, um, you know, and just who she was as a person really, in all manners, exemplifies what we try to do here um, and what we hope to continue to do into the future. So I hope I hope that this podcast has been impactful for you. Um, and we just want to leave you with one last little bonus clip that we couldn't really resist throwing in. So we had our folklore from Stanley Hicks in our first episode. And now we're going to share what's known as a hate tale with you. And we will certainly do a whole episode, I'm sure, on mm-hmm. hate tales in the supernatural. But a hate is what they called a ghost, essentially. And Aunt Ari didn't really believe in ghosts, but she had a story from her grandfather um, one time when he was making some whiskey. <laughs> he saw some spirits. <laughs> he had an experience. And so we're going we're gonna to leave you with this little tale and um, hope that you can join us next time for some stories on wood stove cooking, um, which we're pretty excited to share with you. And we remind you again, uh, please uh, visit the website, uh, follow us on Twitter at it still lives the number one at still lives one, uh, where you can send in your questions or comments or suggestions about the podcast. And of course, you know, you can follow Foxfire uh, on Instagram and Facebook as well to keep up with things. But uh, we thank you so much for listening and, and look forward to, to talking with you again. Yeah, they used to say that Grandpa Carpenter made whiskey. Uh-huh. That was my brother, my husband's daddy. Lord is Grandpa. Mm. And they kept trying to get him to stop, and he just kept making whiskey. I don't know where they are. And uh, one night he was making off and run. And the chains come in rattling around the house. Uh, that was the haint now. That's what they call the haint. 
And he quit that night and pulled out every what he had and quit that night and he never made another drop of liquor. <laughs> <laughs> scared him to death. He never did make another drop.